In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me. I don't mind repeating myself. And it's a safeguard for you. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God. Boast in Christ Jesus and do not put confidence in the flesh. And that's as far as we get. Some of you are thinking, man, that's so awesome. We had a holiday, only a three-verse sermon. That mean, No, that means there was so much information in three verses that you didn't want me to get to verse 11 like I thought we were going to do. I want you to, I want you to if you have a note taker, write it down. If not, just, just put this in your head. And this is kind of an idea. I'll go ahead and tell you that we'll connect with next week um, because I believe this whole section as Paul's transitioning uh, now into this whole righteousness and, and, and stuff idea. Um. It's a theme that we see in the first 11 verses, and it's this. And I think this is true. In the life of a believer, when righteousness is received, it is valued above everything else. When you fully receive righteousness, it is valued above everything else. But then there's this link that Paul connects that I think is so true as we think about the different religions and denominations and and things of the world today. And the link is this. The way we believe we get righteousness determines how much we value righteousness. If you're still thinking, man, I don't, I don't really get it. Here's what I mean. The, the, the way you value righteousness is how much it will reflect in your life. And the problem is this. The problem for many people in the world today is that righteousness isn't received. It's something that's worked for. It's something that's earned. It's something that it's not a gift that's accepted, but rather it's a status that has to be achieved. And they write these resumes for the Lord. Like, the, you know what a resume is, right? You figured it out. Any of you have ever written one? A resume is just something you're writing so that you can be accepted. That's all a resume is. You know, so people who spend so much time writing, you're writing everything that you can think to write that, that makes you sound good so that whatever you're trying to get, you can be accepted for. So when, when the Lord, you know, he's not looking for a resume to begin with, but that's the way some of us write it. We write up all this stuff like, oh, God, look at what I did or, or look at, you know, how many people we reached or and we, we spend our lives in this argument for it. And the problem is this. If you spend your life thinking you earn righteousness, man, you're going to be hoping for something for a really long time that you should know you got. You notice the difference? Could you imagine going your whole life just hoping you get something? I mean, even to the point of being on your deathbed and just hoping that your resume was written well enough where the Lord will accept you. Rather than knowing beyond the shadow of a doubt that, that it's something you've received. So there's a problem then with, with righteousness sometimes is how we get it. And, and how we get it determines how we value it. If you think it's something you can earn, then it has a lesser value. If I can get something, it's, if I can do something, it's not that valuable. You know what I'm saying? Like I, I'm not that special enough where that becomes any kind of significant valued kind of thing. But if this is a gift that I can't get, if this is an unspeakable gift, then therefore it should carry an unimaginable amount of value to you, for you, so much so that it then begins to change you. I don't know how many of you guys, anybody know who Billy Sunday is? Famous center fielder for Chicago. Baseball player. Left the baseball. Yeah, you know him. So you just raise your hand so I don't want the only one with my hand up. He is. He gave up baseball, gave up playing for Chicago, center fielder, and turned into an evangelist. Here's some of the things, and here's one thing that was written about him, and then I just want to read a couple of quotes. Well, you only had two guesses. They said when Billy Sunday spoke, this this is a a quote for him after he left the the baseball field to become this evangelist and began to travel and all. It said he had so much joy and enthusiasm uh, that he began to make everybody in the crowd just begin to smile. And I actually thought that while Cliff was giving you Mr. Harold's uh, praise report. You know, for somebody to say, I couldn't hear nothing them kids were saying, blatant honesty. But at the same time to say, I could feel the joy that was in the room. That's kind of like a Billy Sunday. Like he would get so excited, like you didn't even know if you thought what he thought and agreed with what he thought, but you got excited about it. You know what I'm saying? Like it was it was that kind of enthusiasm that went for it. Really known for speaking about joy, like Paul. Uh, so that's why I got some quotes from him here at the beginning while we're in Philippians. And uh, one of them was this, and I'm, I'm just going to give you two or three of them and then my favorite one at the end. Uh, one of the things he said was, don't look as if your Christianity hurts you. I thought how true that is. You know what I'm saying? Like, think about that. Don't look if your Christianity hurts you. How many people you see at the restaurant when you leave here today or, 
or when you when you leave church or on Monday or whatever, it looks like, man, your Christianity is just like it's a burden on you. It ain't supposed to be a burden. Right. Righteousness that you earn becomes a burden, but but not true biblical rights. Right. Um, so here's another one. He said he said the trouble with many people is that they have just enough religion to make them miserable. Is that not true? You've got just enough man-made joke in your life to make you miserable. And Paul's going to get to this. This is why he uses some harsh words, what I just read. And here's what I just want to get to that I kind of think is my favorite, at least. Maybe it's just for the stage of life we're in with this, this thing right here. But it says this. If you have no joy, there's a leak in your Christianity somewhere. What is it that's got a leak in your Christianity? You know what I'm saying? Like, like think about it. And, and I think... You know, I, I told you guys we weren't going to pause and do any kind of, you know, special Christmas series or anything like that. But I think the Lord has lined up this stuff in Philippians so much for exactly where we're at in our real lives. No, it's not the the birth of Christ kind of story or anything kind of like that. But is it not exactly what really is there not been a lot of things? If you're honest, is there not been a lot of things in the last week or two that have kind of begun to grab some of your joy and and either squeeze it a little tighter and choke it out or just rip it away from you? You know, whether it be the weather, whether it be a car crash, whether it be shopping, uh, whether it be just family functions. I think you're supposed to like being with those people, by the way. But, oh, uh, you know, we, we just got so much junk that comes in um, that joy begins to, to get choked out. There's a leak um, that, that, that our joy is just it's, it's leaving us. And there's a problem with that. Right. If our joy is leaving us because our joy is supposed to be something that lasts forever. So circumstances, uh, people, everyday problems, work, sin, doubt, disease, chronic pain, I just have a list of, of things that challenge our joy. And then I read and I put myself where Paul is and I'm like, man, if those things are stealing our joy, I've got a big problem. Because here I have a brother who is sitting in jail. My, and we've, we've said this before, like he's sitting in jail where, where the verdict of his court case is either going to be life or death. There's no middle road. Right? He may not make it to the court case if enough of these Philippians and other Christians don't supply his needs to keep him alive while he's on house arrest. Right. So I've got somebody who's got every reason in the world to not be joyful telling me how to be joyful. So much so that I want to go back and read what he writes to the Corinthians, second Corinthians, chapter 11. It's not on the screen because it's, it's just too long and I don't have a screen to read off of. Oh, so that's coming soon, too. That looks weird, man. I'm so used to seeing it back there. Oh, here's what he says. Second Corinthians chapter 11, Paul describing his Christian background up until this point, up until this, this walk. And, and I would say, by the way, somebody asked me, how old is Paul? I don't know how old Paul is at this stage of Philippians, but I think this is roughly 20 to 30 years after conversion. I don't remember which one he asked me that, but there's just free information that I gathered. And that's a good range because I don't have a clue. Um, so that gives you, you know, I got to be right within 20 to 30. So here's what Paul describes. He says, I've worked harder. I've been put in jail more often. I've been whipped more times without number, faced death again and again. Five different times the Jews gave me those 39 lashes. Three times I've been beaten with rods. I got stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent the whole night and day adrift out to sea. I've traveled miles. I faced danger from flooded rivers. I faced robbers. I faced danger from my own people, the Jews, and now from the Gentiles. I face danger in the cities and in the deserts and in the stormy seas. I face danger from men who claim to be my brothers and Christians who are not. I've uh, lived with weariness and pain and sleepless nights. I've often been hungry and thirsty and gone without food. Often I've shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Then besides all of this, I have the daily burden of how in the world all these churches that I've ministered to are really getting along. Now, if you're reading along, that's kind of a paraphrase of. Of those things. So I hope you get that. But man, this guy's background. And yet when he writes to the Philippians, he's so anchored to Jesus Christ. He's so trusting in Jesus for his future that he just talks about joy. Fourteen plus times, depending on which translation you have. Joy, joy, joy. Just repeating it, repeating it, repeating it. Chapter one, verse three. I thank my God in remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine, making requests with all joy. Verse 18. You know what then? Only in every way, whether uh, pretense or in truth, Christ is preaching all this. I rejoice. Yes, I rejoice. Remember, he's rejoicing that people are preaching while he's locked up. They're trying to get over on Paul and he's still just praising that the gospel's getting advanced. Chapter two, verse 16. Holding fast to the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I hadn't ran or labored in vain. 
And then a little bit later, yes, I'm being poured out as a drink offering, the sacrifice in service of your faith. Literally talking about that sacrifice that the priest would have went through. And he's OK to be that that part of it. We're not there yet. But chapter four, verse four, probably one of the most well-known Philippians verses. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice, 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 rejoice. And then when you read these first three verses, I don't know if you caught it when, when I read it. I kind of read it a little quick. But like there's some shocking, strong language in verse two. What does it say? Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. I think Paul kind of does this on purpose because here's what we have a tendency to do. If you guys are as honest or want to be honest, uh, when we read sections of scripture that have been repeated to us so many times, we have a tendency to skip over it. I was thinking about one this morning, you know, when Abraham sends out to go look for a bride for his his son. He gives that that servant like this, this real detailed list. If you look, it's like, you know, if your page is this long, it's like this much of it, you know. And you would think like when that servant gets there, he would just like sum it up. Hey, this guy sent me to find. No, he repeats the whole passage again. I've skipped over that passage more times than I've read it. So this is my confession time with you guys. But we do that sometimes with things that are repeated in Scripture. And I think as Paul's getting to this part of Philippians, he's like, I know you guys have heard me talk about joy. I know you've heard me preach on joy and I know you've heard me preach on joy. So now I'm going to throw a little shock factor in it. And the shock factor is beware of the dogs. Beware of the mutilators of the flesh. Beware of the, the evil workers. Kind of like the high school principal. I don't know if you guys heard about the, the principal who he was having a problem with all the girls in the school putting on lipstick. And they were kissing the mirror. The custodian came to him, you know, and he was so sick of just cleaning off lipstick off the wet mirror in the girl's bathroom every single day that he goes to the principal and says, I'll take care of it. So he sits down with all the girls and he tells them, guys, please quit. Kiss the mirror. It's a lot of work for the custodian. Doesn't change nothing. So he tries it again. He talks. He has, so you can talk so much before you need that shock factor. So finally, you know, after enough of time has gone by and they continue to have to clean up these mirrors, the, the custodian, the principal, they get together. They bring all the girls into the say, I want you ladies to see how hard it is to clean this mirror. Why y'all keep on putting on your lipstick and for some strange reason kissing it. So he said, you know, Bob custodian, if you don't mind, would you please clean the window in front of these ladies so they can see how hard it is. So he takes the squeegee and he dips it in the toilet bowl and he comes over to the mirror and he scrapes all that lipstick off and dips it back in the toilet bowl again and gets some more. And he gets that window, that mirror spick and span. There ain't been a girl in that high school kissing that mirror since. Sometimes we need a shock factor to get the point across, right? I want to give you guys three defenses that should stop our joy from leaking. And again, this is just a start to what goes on in the first 11 verses of this chapter. All right. So number one, you got some leaky joy. First of all, you got to have your joy guarded. That seems so obvious, but how often is it that we don't guard our joy? And here's what he says. Verse one. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Now, I just want to point out, because somebody points it out to me all the time, finally here does not mean he's done. Paul is a true Baptist pastor, and he is saying in closing, and he's still got half a book to go. Y'all understand that? Y'all understand when I say finally, or one more point, or last verse, or I'm going to close right now. That does not mean the end. That just means I thought that was going to be the end originally. And the Lord did something else. And Paul's no different. I just point that out because I want to be like Paul. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and y'all always tell me that like it's a problem. I just want to let you know, like, I'm just trying to be in good company with my brother here. Probably a better translation would be also or furthermore, or shall we go on? Right? These aren't shallow words. Here's one thing, I, you know, we talked about at the beginning with Paul's, Paul's resume for this joy. I think if anybody who had had like this great life, had written the Philippians, it wouldn't have the same meaning that it has for us. You know what I'm saying? Like if you talk to somebody who always had everything going great for them and they tell you, man, just be happy. It wouldn't really have the same effect, would it? It's like, of course you're happy all the time. Nothing in your life ever goes wrong. For Paul, somebody who has everything in life going wrong, to continue to say, be joyful, remember Christ, remember what he's done, it changes everything. And just the writing of this phrase, rejoice in the Lord in the, in the Greek context, it's a I don't know what this means because I'm not an English person. Well, I can tell you what it means. I didn't know what it meant when I read it. All right. So here, here for you note takers, it's a present active indicative. Anybody else know what that means? 
Other than my wife, probably. Nerd. No, I didn't either. So I looked, I was like, what does, what does that phrase mean? That phrase means this is an ongoing thing. So you could translate this into saying this. Have your joy constantly rejoicing, continually rejoicing. Kind of like that chapter four, verse four thing where you should rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice, right? So he's telling this joy is an always thing. So here's what I learned if that phrase is true then. Number one, my joy has a lot less to do with what's going on around me than what's going on inside of me. Right? Because if your joy is based off of what's going on around you, there's no way you can be joyful all the time. Not in this world. Right? So no matter what's going on around you, you can respond with joy. Why? Because here's the second thing that phrase teaches me. Joy is not an automatic response. Anybody have an automatic response of joy all the time? No, you none of us can raise our hands because we're afraid of lightning bolts coming down, right? It's a learned response. It's a choice that you have to make. And just to show this, chapter 4, verse 11, even for Paul, it was something he had to learn. In chapter 4, verse 11, Paul says this. Listen carefully. I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. He had to learn this. It's not automatic. Paul's saying, I had to learn this, guys, and now it's my response. So if you're thinking, man, I wish I could be like Paul, or, or if you look at any other brother or sister in the world today, you're like, man, I, I wish I could be like them. Then start learning it. Start working toward it. It's not going to be an automatic thing. It's not just this magical thing that happens. It's no different than David. This, this same phrase comes up in the Old Testament. David in the Old Testament, before he's even king, he's on the run. He's being chased by Saul. He's discouraged. He's distraught. Man, he's just in a, he's in a bad, bad spot. Right? First Samuel chapter 30, he thought he was doing everything the Lord wanted, but life is just, just hammering him, right? And in chapter 1, verse 30, it says this. After Dave, David's gone through his little, little spree or whatever, it says, David encouraged himself in the Lord. That last part of the phrase, same thing Paul uses here, rejoice in the Lord, encourage himself in the Lord. This this has a, a disclaimer with it. This isn't just rejoice, period. This is rejoice, but rejoice in the Lord. Like It's not telling you to rejoice in your circumstances. It's not telling you to rejoice in your, your problem. It's saying your joy is a, a byproduct of your relationship with God. So if you don't have the relationship with God, this sounds crazy to you. Maybe perhaps here, here's a hard one for some of us, if we're honest. Perhaps one of the reasons you don't experience joy is because you're looking for it in the wrong places. Right? You're looking for it in, a, in another person. You're looking for it in a substance. You're looking for it in a, in a, in a job, in a, in a, in a money, in a, in a gift, or whatever it is. And if you're looking for something or someone else to produce it in you, it ain't going to happen. Not this kind of joy. Paul's saying spiritual joy. Here's what spiritual joy really is. Spiritual joy is a reality check. You say, hey, is God still on the throne? Check. Am I still a child of God? Check. All things work together for those who love the Lord. Check. All that produces an oak, right? You know what I'm saying? Like I can be joyful because I've had this reality check spiritually. If I'm not joyful because of my circumstances, then my joy is based in something that it's not supposed to be based on. And that's what Paul's really getting. He goes, you need to guard your joy. Your joy is not in people. Your joy is not in things. Your joy is a byproduct of your relationship with the living, loving Lord of the universe. And if you don't have that, you're missing something. The qualifier, right? So this next sentence, still in verse one, Paul says, rejoice, Lord, for me to write the same thing to you. It's not tedious. It's not burdensome or, or irksome. I don't know what translation you guys have or, or troublesome. Some translations even had the word boring or dull there. He's saying it is safe. What, what I love is what Paul's honesty. You're saying, I know I've had to repeat myself to you guys over and over. Right. This is not like a, a new thing to me. I know I'm repeating myself to you and I'm never going to get tired of telling you this stuff again and again and again and again. I don't want it to get dull, but I want you guys to understand there's a lot of joy stealers out there. There's a lot of grace killers out there. And I want you to guard your joy. Is that not true? Is there not every day, every week of our lives, opportunities that somebody wants to something wants to steal our grace and steal our joy and, and take our, our stuff away, right? And Paul's saying, look, just be on guard about it. Beware that there's things out there that's going to happen that's going to make you want to go crazy rather than just have a spiritual reality check that God's still on the throne and God's still in charge and God's still handling everything he thought everything you thought he was handling in the beginning, right? So number one, guard your, guard your joy. Number two, legalism must be avoided. Legalism must be avoided. Look at what he says in verse two. Three times he says, beware or watch out. I titled the sermon, Watch Out, because my translation, Holman says, watch out. So some of your translations have beware. Beware of the dogs. Watch out for evildoers. Watch out for mutilation, mutilation of the flesh, right? 
Well, what's he really saying? What's he, what's he really getting at? I kind of love this, man. Who's he warning us against? Judaizers. Now, everybody know who Judaizers is? If you don't, let me just give you a, a quick, quick mixture so you can kind of tie it together. It goes a little deeper in this. But a Judaizer is somebody who mixes the grace of Jesus Christ with the law of the Old Testament. And by mix, I don't mean uses both. I mean holds both to the same standard. You understand what I'm saying? Like you can use the Old Testament to illustrate and, and, and go with the grace of God, but it's not the same same standard. Right? That makes sense? Am I, am I trying, I'm trying to sum it up where it's kind of an easy thing, right? So an illustration of this would be this. Peter in the book of Acts chapter 10, he goes to Cornelius' house, Gentile's house. He sits down, he eats with him, he hangs out with him. Afterwards, it says that these Judaizers... Say, Peter, you can't do that. That's the Gentiles you went in. You sat and had a meal with an unclean person. They got all upset. Why? Because here's what they thought. They told Peter this. In order for him to come to Christ, he's first got to come to Judaism. Could you imagine us telling, this is where it relates to real life. Could you imagine us telling people, hey, you got to be a member of the church before you can get saved. Is it not the exact opposite? You know, I kind of shared this with the, with the men Wednesday a little bit. I was like, man, we've, we've really messed up what church is, to be quite honest with you. Church is not just a, an open door for, it is an open door, but you know what I'm saying? Like, it wasn't intended to be this open door for everybody to just come in. Church was a gathering of the saints. That means that church, in the book of Acts, when you study it, was literally believers, like-minded people, getting together, equipping one another to then go outside the walls and do all this other stuff. You should not, and I, and I hate to Pick on some of my brothers and some of my brothers that preach. I'll pick on them and let them know. There should not be a need every Sunday where you have to end the service with a repeat after me prayer. You know what I'm saying? Like if your church is that full of lost people, you ain't got a church. You got an evangelistic outreach thing going on. Title it different. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's a different thing. It's not the same. The church is people who are believers. We getting equipped. We get built up. We flexing. We working out so we can go outside and be who we're called to be. All right. And, and there's a big, big difference. So th- these people were telling them, man, no, they got to come to Judaism first. Then you can hang out with him, right? Show it even further in case you, you thought it was just Paul. I mean, so in case you thought it was just Peter, Paul the apostle himself had the same problem on the first missionary journey. Now, keep in mind, Paul always, every place he went to, I hope you know this, every place he went to, he went to the synagogues first. He went to the Jew first, and when the Jews didn't want to listen, then he went to the Gentile. Same way the Gospels preached or the whole, the whole message of the Bible is, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile, right? So he does this. And the Gentiles, we know, because we got a lot of these letters and we're part of it. The Gentiles are the one who accepted. They respond. So Paul spends his time with them. He finishes his missionary journey. He filters back to Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter 15, when he comes home, they throw a fit. Because in Acts 15, here's what they say in verse 1. Unless you are circumcised and keep the laws of Moses, you cannot be saved. That is literally how they worded it. What? You talking about a little cutting of the flesh and a following of the rules is the only way to get saved? Is that is that the message you're trying to say? They're Judaizers. They attach themselves to the church. These, these guys became so well known when you study a lot of Paul's letters and the book of Acts. They followed Paul everywhere he went. And when he would leave a church, they would go into the church and try to disrupt everything he had been preaching. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine your whole life is sold out to try and advance the gospel with the right beliefs, the right the right understandings of things. And yet, as soon as you leave, that's why I had to write a lot of these letters. He'd have to write back and be like, I know there was a group of knuckleheads that came after me. And I just want to make sure you not get mixed up with what they're saying versus what, what the truth is. Right. So, so we're thinking that, that and, and maybe some of us are thinking, I don't know, maybe some of us can understand. We're like, man, those days are long gone. Pastor, why are we spending so much time? Because they're not. Those days are not long gone. There are always people around us that they got these list of rules that you're supposed to keep. And if you don't keep a certain list of rules, you're not right with God. There are super spiritual movements happening all around us where there's groups of people that believe you've got to add to scripture and add to grace in order to receive grace. And I just want to make sure, like Paul says, Paul says, these people are dogs. That's what he says. Now, I want you to understand this, because when we read scripture, it doesn't it doesn't really sound as bad as it really is. Right. What, what I mean by that is this. When people when he calls them dogs for us in America, we, we got dog parks. You know, what I'm saying like we got dogs that sleep with us. We got doggy daycares. Some of y'all got funny little sweaters on your dogs. You know, Carly, you do that, too. I came into my mama's house on Christmas morning to get my gifts and stuff and, and, and give gifts. And, and this little dog 
is wearing the same outfit that matches the PJ pants of my wife. That's no lie. That is that is bold on the truth right there. These little buffalo plaid, I think, is what my wife told me it's officially called. Oh, now the ladies are shaking their head like, oh, pastor knows style. Nope. Pastor was just informed. <laughs> right? Buffalo plaid on the dog. It's very fashionable. It was nice. They didn't know they were matching either. That was better. <laughs> Here's why it even gets more ironic. So th- this is why dogs don't sound so bad to us, right? More on it because the Jews would call the Gentiles dogs because of their uncleanliness. They, they, they would go further and say, because you're not part of God's people, you're, you, you deserve nothing but the scraps at the end of the table, right? So, so when Paul says, this is what I love, man, Paul, Paul, Paul's getting like Peter right here, right? He's saying, you want to call them dogs? I'm calling you a dog, right? And he's not using the word. Here's what you need to understand. I, I wouldn't even have thought of this, except for not too long ago, many chapters. We went through the book of Matthew as a member sitting in here. And the Lord calls this lady a dog. And it sounds real. It sounds rough, man. You're like, dang, Jesus, like, it's bad enough you called your mom a woman, but now you're calling another lady dog. And you need to understand, in their language, there, there was two words for dog. There was one that was that dog that had the buffalo plaid sweater on. It was it was your pet. It was, you know, treated like a child. And we thought, did anybody, let me get off on this tangent real quick. I need it, right? Anybody else buy your dog stocking stuffers for Christmas? Really, there's other ones that I'll be all in here. Okay, I just wanted to ask. My wife put up stockings with the dog initials on them, and I was sitting there scratching my head. And then Friday night, not only did she have the stockings with her initials on it, Friday night she's putting stuff in the stocking for the dog. Then, then she wraps a gift for the dog. You, you see that connection? This actually has a really cool meaning. That's the kind of dog the Lord would have talked about when he looked at that lady and said the word dog. He's saying, oh, you're, you're, you're a pet of the man. You're not, you're not, you're not the child, but you're a pet. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's not quite child status, but it's an intimate pet relationship. So it's a little different, right? And it, here, here's how you know it's different. Because when they use the word dog right here, here's where it comes from. Well, t- two, two phrases it comes from. Right. So the first time the word dog is used in this sense is Deuteronomy chapter 23. Right. And in Deuteronomy chapter 23, it referred to a male cult prostitute. Literally, what it says is this. You shall not bring the wages of a harlot nor the price of a dog to the house of the Lord. Very stark language for this thing. So I'll let you fill in what we words that we have nowadays that go to. That is literally what scripture is saying right here. Right. So as they're saying this and they're, they're saying, well, you non Gentiles, you're not part of this. You're not. Part of the Lord's house, you're not allowed in. This same word, now you get to the New Testament, opposite of the lady in the book of Matthew, this other Greek word for dog means vicious, ferocious scavengers that roam the streets. They're strays. It'd be the difference in us saying my pet versus some stray thing that won't go away, right? Some some mangy little thing that you're, you know what I'm saying? They're dangerous, they're, they ate filth, they bred disease, they, they tear and devour. These are words that they would use for this, right? And tell me that isn't spot on for legalists. Do legalists not tear and devour the grace of God? You ever thought about that? You feel like you got it and you're like, oh man, that feels so good to receive the grace and love God. Then a legalist comes in there and just tears it up. I think that makes God so mad. I, I really do. I think that breaks the Lord's heart when we allow somebody to come in and devour and tear up the grace that he's poured out on us, right? With, with adding... To the scripture. So the second thing he said, or first thing he said, beware of dogs. Second thing he says, beware of evil workers. And here's what's so sad. They're evil workers because they think they're doing good. In reality, they're, they're not. And it's kind of a play on words because he's not only talking about the, the evil workers, but he's also saying the works they do are evil. Legalists believe you got to get right with God by doing good works. You do a ceremony. You have a ritual. You, you do good. You try hard. You earn your way. And here's why this is so important, right? Why would he dare get so upset about this mess up on the gospel? And here's what I hope we understand and why we've got to stand guard against it so much. Because if that's your belief, then you're saying what Jesus Christ did on the cross wasn't enough. You know what I'm saying? Then you're saying what he shed, the blood that he shed on the cross wasn't good enough. And I got to add something to that. I don't know about you, but I don't ever want to stand face to face with my creator whenever that time comes. And tell him, oh, I did all this. Look at my resume because I didn't think what you did 
was enough. Right? Wow. Now, this is not a, a strong enough example, but we had a lady, she bought a lift kit, bought some rims and tires for her husband. This fool had the audacity. I don't know how many of you women go that far out, but I think that's the, mm, that's, that's a woman right there. You know what I'm saying? She buy you a lift kit and set of wheels and tires. Get ready. You know what I'm talking about, right? So this woman does this. She plans it all out. She's got it all great. This fool walks in. Now, maybe he was trying to do it while she was outside. He walks in and says, hey, what I got to do to get a different set of wheels? But I looked at that woman's face and it was like, Psh. I was like, oh, man, come on. You're saying all that stuff she worked so hard to do wasn't enough. That's a set of wheels, tires and a lift kit. And I can see the deflation. Could you imagine somebody who hung on a crawl? No, let's get way deeper than getting mad over some stupid wheels and tires. Right. Could you imagine somebody who hung on a crawl, shed blood, died for you while dying for you, said, Father, don't hold them responsible. They don't know what they're doing at this stage. Like, I love them more now than I love them when I was walking with them and eating with them and fellowshipping with them. That's the kind of status he's got hanging on a cross. And you want to tell him it wasn't enough? Really? Man. I don't ever want us to think that good works can ever get us closer with God. Now, here's what I'm not saying. So please hear me this. I'm not saying that good works don't happen, okay? Because I, I know some of you will take this. Like, we ain't got to do nothing, Pastor Seller. We, we, just, we just can run wild and grace done got us. And that's not what I'm saying at all. I want you to understand that good works are a byproduct of grace. There's an order to this thing, right? Good works are a byproduct of a relationship with the Lord. Once you come to Jesus Christ, you get really close with him. It's authentic. You have repentance. You've got faith. He changes you to do good things. So it's a different. You're not doing good things to get saved. You're doing good things because you're saved. Right? There will be good works. A lot of good works. But they're based off of a relationship with the Lord. It doesn't get better because you're doing evil works, as Paul calls them right here. Right? And, and it's almost like when you get around these kind of people, I don't know if you've ever been around somebody like that. Like they, they kind of steal your, they steal your joy. That's why Paul's writing about it. He's like, I don't want your joy. So, but to make y'all anxious and weird feeling. Because you begin to get so concerned about what they're thinking. Well, maybe I'm not as holy as they are. Maybe, you know what I'm saying? Like maybe I'm not doing as, as good as they say. You get so anxious about what others are saying and others are thinking that you're no longer living out the good news. You're living out anxiety. I mean, literally, that, that, that's what takes place, right? You're not free anymore. What does scripture say about his children? You are free and free indeed, right? Well, when you live this way, you're not free. You're bound up still. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. Paul says there are false apostles who corrupt you. Listen to the words. They're corrupting you from the simplicity that is in Christ Jesus. I love that part, man. I love that part. He's, he's, he's saying like, it's so simple. Don't let it get, don't let it get changed. Like it's almost like so simple. We don't want to understand it that way, right? It's just, so just trust him. Just embrace the work that he's done for you. And here's the third mark. He says, when these dogs, these evil workers, he says, watch out for mutilation. Legalists are destructive. Some of your translations have beware of the concision. You're like, what in the world does that mean? Right? Beware of the mutilation. What, what does that mean? Here, here's what it goes back to. It's a covenant for the Jews. Not too much detail because I think we're all adults and we understand, right? It's an outward mark of circumcision that says this. A male child at eight days old gets circumcised. What does it mean? National relationship the Jews had with God. It's a symbol. It's a symbol. So to speak of the, the reality of my flesh is being cut away and now I'm going to focus on only spiritual things, right? That's what, that's what it was supposed to be a symbol of. It's, they get so far off because this symbol then becomes a, a ritual which then becomes just a formality, right? So far, so remember uh, Ezekiel, he writes and he tells them like, you, you guys still have a heart of stone inside of you. We're going to cut it away and make it flesh and get back to the real thing, right? It, it's the same thing for baptism for us today. In case you say, well, what do we have that relates to this? Baptism. You ever hear somebody ask somebody, hey, who's saved? Well, I got baptized on June 17th. I didn't ask you if you got baptized. I asked you if you're saved. I asked you if you got a relationship with the Lord. I asked you, you know, say, who's going to heaven? I, I got baptized, Pastor. I'm a member of the church. I didn't ask you that. That's great. I'm glad you got wet once. But, you know, I'm saying I, I, that's not what I asked. What I asked is, do you have a relationship with the Lord? Are you, you know, saved? Are you going to heaven? Are you, are you working out this thing with him, right? Judaizers. They taught that circumcision was a vital act of salvation. You had to have it. To be, you remember so much so that when Paul preaches 
and he gets some grown men saved, some grown men converted, however wording you want to use, right? Then these guys come in afterwards and they're like, all right, line up. Could you imagine being a grown man who ain't had that act done yet and just lining up to get it done like it was just normal routine, right? Ain't no cotton picking way, right? Ain't no way. But that's what they thought. So Paul's saying, beware of the mutilation. Beware of this. this strong, so much of a strong term. I don't know if you guys remember back when we did Acts chapter 18. And, and Elijah's at Mount Carmel with, with all the prophets of Baal. And, and, and they're writing and, and he kind of antagonizes. He goes, maybe, maybe you need to yell louder. Maybe he can't hear you. All right. So these guys go so far. They, they stay there for, for days and days and days. Right. They start. It says scripture says they started cutting themselves for hours, dancing around, calling to their gods. That's mutilation. It's the same word. It's the same word that they use for a pagan practice. So what Paul is saying here is your circumcision is meaningless. It's a pagan mutilation. And there's no reality behind the ritual. And that's the scary part to be at, right? Legalism does that. It mutilates the grace of God and the work of Christ. You realize there's only really two religions in the world? I didn't think about this till last week. Two religions in the whole world. We, we got them all, you know, there's this and there's that. And, no, there's two. There's you either get right by human achievement or you accept divine accomplishment. That's it. And I don't care how many forms of Christianity or how many different denominations we try to mix it up with. That's it. You're either bragging about all that you did. You're working on your resume. Or you just accept divine accomplishment. Right. And what Paul is saying with these guys, 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 you got to be on guard. Don't let the, the mixed practices, the mixed understandings of this word mix you guys up. Right. Third thing he says. So joy's got to be guarded. Legalism's got to be avoided. Number three, defense to, to leaky joy. Identity's got to be comprehended. You got to understand who you are. You know what I mean by that? Identity's got to be comprehended. You got, you got to understand who you are. Look at verse three. So he's saying, watch out for who you're not or who you're not supposed to be. And then he says, for who we are. For we, we are the circumcision. What? We are who? We're true followers of Christ. We're spiritually, spiritually we are circumcised, right? We've got this inner thing working inside of us, an inward cleansing that takes place. True circumcision. In Romans chapter 2, Paul says this. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly and the circumcision is out of the flesh. But he did say, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly and the circumcision is the circumcision of the heart by the spirit. Not written in some code that you can't understand. Right? He's saying it's an inward reality of an outward ritual that needs to speak. It's like my ring. Maybe a better illustration for us today, right? I, I am ashamed to tell you this is not my first ring. Not that I've been married before, but this is not my first ring that Crystal gave me. This, this is not my second ring that she gave me. I'm not even honestly sure if it's my third ring that she's given me. Uh, me and water had a lot of fun. Uh, what I mean by that is my first ring is in the lake. My second ring is at Edisto Beach somewhere. And I don't know if this is the third or if I lost another one in the water between then. But, but, but the point is this, because I have a ring on, what, what is, what does most people assume? But could I not wear a ring on this finger and not be married? Right? But, but, I, but I do have a spouse, right? So, so what I'm saying is this, the ring itself isn't as important as the relationship. Make sense? Right? The ring isn't as important as the relationship. But if I do have a ring on this finger and I do have a spouse, then the ring points that I have a spouse. Right? I do have a spouse. I do have a ring. And this ring kind of proves it, right? It's the thing about believers. They have crosses around their neck or crosses around their house. It's not a matter if you've got a cross around your neck or, or a baptism certificate on your wall. The question is, do you have a Savior in your heart? That's the big difference. Now, you can use all those other illustrations to, to connect and be, be involved and remind yourself of that. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But if he's not in your heart first, all the rest of that stuff don't mean nothing, right? So Paul's saying we are true followers. We've been circumcised in the heart. We've got the real thing going on. Then he says this, that we're not only the true followers, the true circumcised, we're true worshipers. Because what does he say? Look, look at the next phrase in the verse. We're the circumcision who worship God in this spirit. What? In the spirit? Yeah, opposed to the flesh. Opposed to something that's only outward. Opposed to only rituals. He's saying this is real and this is authentic. It's an inward over against the outward, right? Kind of, kind of like Paul's whole view on joy. Like he can look 
to, to, to joyful situations, not because of, of something that was going on outward, but because he was looking upward. And that, that's what he's getting at. He goes, this, this whole thing with the Spirit and this whole thing with, with true worship has taken place. The outward needs to speak to the inward. You remember when Jesus uh, sat down with the lady of Samaria at the well? He's sitting down, he's about to tell her about all the relationships and marriage and sex life and everything. I mean, he's really getting ready to get into it with her. You remember what she does? She does the same thing a lot of us will do. She deflects. You remember what she, you remember what she says? She sits down there and Jesus starts talking to her. What does she say? Well, well, your people used to worship in Jerusalem and, and, and now they worship in somewhere else. Where, where should we worship? Now, I love Jesus' response, right? So Jesus is trying to get at the heart of the matter. She's trying to deflect to, to something totally different, which, you know, she gets Jesus' attention with the whole thing at worse, right? And Jesus says this, right? When the hour is coming, or the hour is coming, when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father, for God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying it's got to be authentic and it's got to be real. It's got to be based on the truth of Scripture and not on the lies of man. Right. The question isn't, do you stand when you worship? The question isn't, do you sit when you worship? It's not, do you raise your hands when you worship? Do you sway when you worship? The question is, do you worship? Do you? And I hope you worship more than just 45 minutes here with us on a Sunday morning. If that's all you're getting in, there's a problem, right? Is it real? Is it authentic? Is it is it changing your life? Is your spirit and your heart being being authentically tied to this thing? Is your identity as a believer Tied up in true worship. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, we are the true worshipers. We've had our heart cut, and we are worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth. The third description, he says, is we're true celebrators. Is that a good word? Celebrators. Celebrators. That's probably a better word, right? We're true celebrators. What's he saying? Because he's saying rejoice. What does he say? Rejoice in the Lord. So in this case, it'd be better to say we brag on or we boast about. We're not bragging about what we did. You know, we're getting away from all them dogs and evildoers and, and flesh mutilators. We're bragging about what Jesus did. We going on. I'm going to tell you now, if our songs of worship talk more about what we do than what he did, there's a problem. Right? If our sermons begin to get more about us than about him, there's a problem. If our lives get more about us than about him, there's a problem. Right? And the legalistic person, they're always what? Trying to minimize the work of Jesus so they can maximize the life of themselves. Sit down and just listen to somebody when they talk. I'm serious. Listen to somebody when they talk and, and you'll, you'll be able to figure out real quick where their beliefs really are and their, their true identity. If they talk more about what they've been doing than what Jesus has done, there's a problem. The, 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 the second half of this verse, I'm going to go ahead and tell you where we're going next week. It's all about testimonies. That, that Paul's going to give you his testimony real quick in a couple verses, right? If your testimony, if you're the main theme of your testimony, there's a problem. I'm just telling you straight up. Because unless you're trying to win somebody to you, that ain't going to do no good. Right? And that's what Paul's getting at. He goes, we got we, we to get away from, sorry, got to get away from maximizing the work of man and start maximizing the work of Jesus. Right? Legalistic people, they got rules, they got regulations, they get smug, they get proud. Mark Twain has a quote about him, I think. He doesn't say legalistic, but he does say this. Having spent considerable time with some good people, I understand why Jesus liked to eat with the tax collectors and the sinners. Right? Truth hurts sometimes. Notice the last six, ver- six words of this, this verse. And have no confidence. Everybody say no. That means none. Now I know I took a two-letter word and I made it four letters. That's scary for a lot of us. That's bigger, right? No means none. I got none confidence in the flesh. We are totally dependent on Jesus. Does that not make you just go, Whew. you know what I'm saying? Like everybody try it one time for me. Sit up straight so you get a good deep breath and just. It feels good, don't it? I'd be doing that sometime. This is no lie. I'd be doing that sometime at the house and Crystal would be like, what's wrong? I'd be like, there ain't nothing wrong. What do you mean what's wrong? She said, I heard you take your deep breath. You always take. I take my deep breath because I feel good releasing. I'm dead. Say, I ain't joking with you at all. I promise you that's really what I'm doing. Like, I, you know, y'all, y'all seen bad boys? Probably shouldn't talk about bad boys in church. That's not good, right? Bad boys, they, they say just rub your ears. Woosaw. That's my woosaw, man. My woosaw is just a. <sighs> but do you realize when Paul's writing this, I really think that's what he I think Paul would have. I think when Paul was writing this, and, and I know a lot of people, and I, and I do believe they're correct. When Paul was writing the book of Philippians, he's so far into his, his blindness and eyesight, he's got a writer. You know, he's, he's got a scripture. He's talking. 
I think he paused and no confidence in the flesh. Because the very next thing he goes into, not to get us there because we're supposed to wait until next week, right? But the very next thing he goes in there is all the things he used to have confidence in. He goes into a list of all the things he did right and all the things he did good. And he's just thinking, I ain't got to rely on that no more. Man, it feels good. Doesn't it feel good when the burden and weight, the anxiousness is just taken off of you? That's what Paul's saying right here. He goes, he goes, get away from the humanistic message that you got to pull yourself. You know a phrase I hate that we use, by the way, while I'm there on this humanistic idea? We say all the time, God helps those who help themselves. You realize that ain't in the Bible? Unless you wrote it in there. And then you got a whole separate argument with the Lord whenever you meet with him. Right? That ain't nowhere in there. So it says God helps those that help themselves. You know, we get we get all this time of the year, we're like the giving and stuff. We're like, well, if they start helping themselves, maybe God would help them. If we try to throw God in there like it's a spiritual idea. Well, I said God. Doesn't that make it? No, that don't make it spiritual. That makes it even more wrong. Because now you're changing what the Lord said, right? Legalistic messages, man. He says, you work your way to heaven? No. You keep written? No. You keep certain? No. You keep your fingers crossed? No. That's not the message. The message is Jesus paid it all. The message is all to him I owe. The message is sin left me a crimson stain and he washed me white as snow. It's the gospel. Man. You know, you realize Jesus himself, this ain't just Paul. Jesus himself said, I want to bring joy back to your life. You remember what he said? Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. I think some people in the church think it said, like, I come to you have a, have a bummer life. I'm serious. You ever look at people sometime, man? The way they act, the way they live. No. I, I, I got written like he wants joy to the max. Joy, abundant joy, like over the top kind of joy. Right? That's what he's aiming for. And in the end, he's telling them, it's not a mark on your body. It's a mark on your heart that produces true worship and true confidence in the Lord. It'd be no different than this. Let me give you this illustration since we got a little bit of time, right? Suppose you got a new car for Christmas. Brand new one. Nice. You know what I'm saying? Like full of gas. <laughs> not, not, not one of them cars where you had to go fill it up like it's full of gas too, right? You want to go to one of the national parks. You go to Rocky Mountain National Park. I don't know if you've seen some of the pictures this time. You're beautiful, right? Gorgeous. You start driving up there. You're as happy as you can get, right? I mean, you roll it. Getting on the mountain roads. That new car is handling great. You got your whole family with you. I mean, this is just a beautiful, beautiful scene, right? You get, you get a little bit, let's say you get 400 miles. You got to get a car to get about 400 miles because anything that gets more gas mileage than that ain't fun to drive, right? So let's just be honest about it, right? So you get about 400 miles, you got to stop and get some gas. But why, why are you pulling into a town to get gas? You see everybody pushing cars. Now, after about 400 miles, you're getting pretty close to good mountain territory. So they're like working really hard. You know, you got to push uphill. So you think, man, that's kind of weird. Like this many people run out of gas at the same time. Like what a, what a bummer, right? Bummer life. Right? So, so you pull in, you, you get your gas, you fill it up and you start talking to one of these guys saying, man, what are you doing? And, and they panting and exhausted and just, just was, man. We was driving to the Rocky National Park and we realized there's a better way to do it. So we started pushing our car. And you're intrigued. You said you figured out there's a better a better way to do it? So you push it. What, what's that doing? Oh, this is good for the environment. Not only is it good for my environment, it's good for my health. Right? Because I'm getting stronger and, I, and I'm working all this. And let's just say, let's just say you was dumb enough to believe that. Now, I don't care what you believe on all the other stuff. Go with the illustration, right? So you started pushing your car. Your brand new car with your family inside after you filled up with gas again. So now you got a full tank of gas. In a brand new car with all your family with you and you're pushing this car up the hill. When you finally make it to the Rocky National uh, Park, are you going to be joyful? Are you going to have a smile on your face? Are you going to be the most excited person in the world? Are you kidding me? You're going to be miserable. Why? Because you just pushed your brand new car full of gas up the mountain. Right? You think that sounds crazy? Here's what Paul writes to the Galatians. And I hope you guys are okay with me using a lot of Paul's letters to tie in where Paul's at, right? I think he wrote a lot of them at the same time is one reason. To the Galatians, he says this. Why is it having that you guys begun in the spirit, you began with a full tank of gas on your brand new car. Now you're trying to be made perfect by the flesh. Is that not what we do sometimes? Look, look, these were great believers. These are great believers, right? 
He says you had a full tank of gas. You began in the spirit. Why are you trying to push your way through life now? It don't work that way. Maybe you're a person that can be best described as religious, but not righteous. That's a problem. I get people telling me all the time. Sometimes I'll start talking, talking a little bit of a little bit of the word to them. And they tell me, oh, I'm not really a religious person. I said, good, me neither. I hate them religious people. You know what I'm saying? Like Religion is man's attempt to get to God, right? Relationship is God's attempt to get to us. Huh? And that's where he's at. Righteousness. The only righteousness God will ever allow into his kingdom is a righteousness through Christ alone. So he says, he says, I hit my son is enough. There's nothing you're going to add to it. So guard your joy. Stay away from legalism and make sure you know your identity. And when you know these three things, when you know that, I think it's such, I don't know if Carl planned it this way or what, but I'll be honest with you. Like it is such a fitting song to end the day within Christ alone. Cause that is, I mean, that is really what Paul is getting at. Even so that maybe here in the next section, he's even going to hammer on it a little bit more with making sure they understand like, it's not about my stuff. It's not about this. It's not, it's about Christ alone. And if you think you had to add something to that, you've missed it. You know what I'm saying? You've missed it. Let's pray. Father God, help us to understand your word better this morning. Father, help us to to be on guard against outside forces that may be trying to interrupt what you're doing in our lives. Trying to change what your word says like your word isn't enough, Lord God. God, help us not ignore the repetition of Paul. Or, or your word or anything else in our life, Lord God, where, where we've got to hear it more than once to make sure we get it. But Lord God, help us to grab a hold of this joy. Grab a hold of our identity in you. And stand firm, Lord God, against the, the things of the flesh outside. Lord God, help us to understand and cherish true righteousness because it is a gift from you and from you alone. And Lord God, may it excite us so much, Lord God, that maybe... Maybe like they said about Billy Sunday, Lord God, that people can see it even if they don't hear it everywhere we go. Your great and holy name we pray. Amen.